Hey there, all you serial killer fanatics. I'm Amanda. And I'm Corey. And welcome back to Serial Killer Tuesday. Here at SKT, we talk about the nitty-gritty of all things serial killers. We're just two best friends who love to talk about true crime and wanted to provide you, our new best friend, a place to talk about it too. New episodes air every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Each month, we will discuss the depravity of a new serial killer with weekly deep dives into their lives. Stop by for the stories. Stay for the fun. Here's your little fun fact for the day. It's not really fun, and I apologize. Many serial killers report having an abnormally strong sex drive, and many fantasize about dead women rather than living ones. I hope you're enjoying all these little facts. Please let us know. Also, as always, listener discretion is advised. So here's a little recap about Israel Keys. As you might remember, we just talked about Israel's upbringing with his family and siblings. Israel's parents were extremely religious and moved the family several times. Once to a small one-room cabin where the children were forced to sleep outside in tents and hunt their own food. Today, we're going to be getting into the victims and suspected victims of Israel's. Israel was known to target people all across the country to basically avoid being caught. He liked to plan for months before he committed any type of crime. He specifically went to campgrounds and other isolated locations. He only used guns and preferred to strangle his victims. This was because he derived pleasure from witnessing his victims lose consciousness. He claimed to not kill children or any parents of children because he had a daughter and he feared she would find out about him and his crimes. But the police and the FBI suspect that he killed several teenagers and children. Um, a little side note I about like uh, the deriving pleasure from witnessing his victims lose consci- consciousness. I was watching a, a Dateline or 2020 or Evil Lives Here or something like that. And I was re- it was about this rapist that had raped in um, Colorado and in Washington State. And he was like a former army man and um, and his brother said that when he went to live with him, he turned out to be like this serial rapist mm-hmm. and they did an interview with the, the guy. His name was Mark. And he said that it wasn't so much for him about the raping that didn't, that's not where he got his pleasure from. He got his pleasure and his, and being turned on from the fear in his victim's face and the fact that they would like either yell or scream or cry. That was the part that turned him on, not actually the, the actual act of rape. That's really sad to me. Yeah. It was a really interesting like show. And I know that um, people like people say that and you're like, Oh, okay, whatever. But they actually like his whole interview was they had his whole interview on the the show and he was just like laid back in his, in the chair, like telling his story about how he, you know, would stalk his victims. And then the fear of that was more satisfying to him than the actual act of it. Yeah. Yeah. I that's know. Disgusting to me. Sorry. That was a little off topic, but I wanted to just say that no, that's just, like a real thing. It's just crazy to me how, I think that's really like where true crime kind of snags me in is the depravity. 
Yeah, and like the psyche mm-hmm. behind all of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to know. I-, I can't fathom committing or having any of these acts committed on me. Right. And so the fact that somebody could find that arousing is just baffling to me. And I just like, I want to know how and why, because it doesn't make sense to me. Well, and I think the more fact of it is he was just laid back in the office chair telling the investigators this story. Like he was telling his grandma about his day at school. That's so scary to me. Yeah. And he was, and he wasn't, I mean, in your head, you have like an image of what a a person who commits crime looks like. Yeah, like what a monster looks like. Right. Um, this man was a handsome man. He would he was in the army. He was good looking. He could have had anybody, like any woman he wanted, but instead he chose to stalk victims of all ages and rape them because that's where he got pleasure in it he's like i know he's like i had a monster inside me i tried to i tried to stuff it down it didn't work um and fear is what attracts what makes me like aroused and he was just it was just a normal conversation like we're having now and i was like oh my gosh he is so like his brain is so different than our brains that he thinks that talking about this is like talking about the weather or talking about your kids or whatever yeah, I think that's the part that fascinates me the most. Not that serial killers are fascinating, but or serial rapists or serial crime. You know, serial crime is not supposed to be fascinating to people, but I think it's the minds behind that that makes it fascinating. Yes, I think so too. Because it's not so, normal and it's not how we think. And no, so no. we I think just as people in general, we try to understand things that that don't make sense and we want mm-hmm. we're we're curious about it and we're we want to know why and how that happens. Right. Now, sorry, that was a little off topic. I apologize, but I just wanted to throw that out there. No, um, I think it's interesting. Thank you. Uh, Israel's first murders were believed to be committed between 1996 and 1997 when he was living in Colville, Washington. His first believed victim was Julie Harris. She was a 13-year-old Special Olympics medalist in skiing. She disappeared March 2nd, 1996, while she was waiting for a ride to a local church. Her remains were found April 26th, 1997, in a wooded area just a few miles from where she went missing. She was a double amputee, and her prosthetic feet had been found by the Colville River just a month after she went missing. Keyes was just 18 at the time and had been living in the area. He was questioned in 2012 about her death after he was arrested, but he neither confirmed nor denied killing her. Victim number two was Cassandra Cassie Emerson, who was just 12 at the time she went missing. She was reported missing after the remains of her 29-year-old mother, Marlene Emerson, were found in their burned-out trailer in June of 1997. Cassie's remains were found in 1998, about 13 miles away from her home. Keyes had admitted that his first active arson was a trailer in Colville. When Keyes' one-time fiancé was questioned, she stated that she thought he was responsible for committing three murders in Colville. A former friend of Keyes remembered seeing him at the same pool that Julie Harris, the first victim, had frequented and that they had saw them talking to each other. When Keyes was interrogated by investigators... 
he admitted that he killed five people in Washington state. He claimed to have either buried or submerged a victim in Lake Nia Bay sometime between July and October of 2001. There had been a body found, but their death had been ruled accidental. He also confessed to a double murder of a young couple, which occurred between 2001 and 2005. The FBI believed that they were Eugene Hyatt and Cammie Volendorf, 18 and 16, respectively. They were both last seen at Boiler Bay State Park in DePoe Bay, Oregon, on November 21, 2001. They left Hyatt's grandparents' condo at 10 a.m., telling them that they had planned to look at tide pools during the day. They were both never seen again. According to a statement that Keyes made, he beat the male to death and strangled the female, then buried them. DePoe Bay is a seven-hour drive from where Keyes was living at Nia Bay. Then, between 2005 and 2006, he stated that he killed two more victims. They had been killed separately. One was apparently dumped in Lake Crescent, Washington. Keyes did not have any felony record in Washington, although he had been stopped on two occasions for minor driving-related offenses. The investigators reviewed all the unsolved murder cases and missing persons cases to determine if any had been the work of Keyes. In 2022, they identified a possible victim known only as the Lewis County Jane Doe. She was a woman who was found in Peterman Hill area in Morton, Washington. She was found on April 7, 2011 by a passing motorist. In 2022, she was formally identified, but her, identify, but her identity was not publicly revealed. Keyes also confessed to a murder in New York State, but in late 2012, investigators had not determined the age, identity, or sex of the victim, or even when or where the murder had occurred. They did regard the confession as credible, however. I don't know how you would regard a confession as credible about a murder if you don't know where the victim was or who it was or I what have to person agree. they were. Like, I don't see how you can, I don't see how that's a valuable confession. Like, hey, I killed a guy. Okay. Right. I think because. And he's like, I don't know where. <laughs> well, I, I think that's kind of what happened, though, is that he. His M.O. was not having an M.O. Right. That's true. And so true. I think that, you know, maybe he just, the numbers started to kind of pile up. And right. He was like, I just. I know, I know that I was here and I know that something happened, but I don't know. I can't put a face to it, which is just heartbreaking to me. Right. So. Israel Keys is an interesting serial killer because he killed people of different sexes, different ages, different races, um, children, elderly. He didn't, it, he wasn't particular um, on his killings. So Delmer Wayne Sample was just 52 when he disappeared from Centralia, Washington on March 4th, 2005. He was planning on going hiking in Tillamook, Oregon. His car was found abandoned 200 miles north of the Tillamook area near Lake Quinault in Quinault, Washington. Police found his sleeping bag and food inside his car. 
that seems like stuff you would keep with you if you're camping and hiking. The FBI spent a significant amount of time and resources investigating Sample as a potential victim. There is a dark spot on Key's timeline from March 2nd to March 8th, where Keyes had been canoeing on Lake Quinault in, on March 1st, where they had found Sample's car abandoned. But unfortunately for the Samples family, investigators ultimately ruled in 2014 that there was insufficient evidence to tie his disappearance to Keys. I feel bad for them because his body's never been found. Um, he's just, like, vanished. I in think June, that's probably, like, the worst part of mm-hmm. losing somebody. And, like, you have a suspect who you, you know, you're pretty sure this is right. who did it. And then... You're, you as the, the the victim's family never get that closure. No, I think that would be one of the hardest things to do. Hopefully he's, I mean, hopefully he's at peace wherever he is. Um, hopefully he's not in the bottom of the lake somewhere because that, that, that will be whole, like a whole Lake Mead thing. That'll be, that is kind of interesting to me that the Lake Mead the thing lake where Mead. the bodies mm-hmm. are washing up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm hopeful I live in like the world of sunshine and puppies where I'm like, maybe he ran away from his family and his life and he's living in Nepal and he's a Sherpa. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Like that's, I would much rather picture life that way than that. He was actually a victim of a serial killer. Serial killer. Mm -hmm. In June 20th of 2006, 52 year old Stephen Michael Mason went missing while he was camping in the Olympic national forest. That is near Sequim, Washington. He and his wife had been camping together, but they had gotten into a fight and she left the campsite. The next day, Stephen went to his friend's house to return his vehicle and his wife's purse back to her, but he wanted to keep camping. So the friend drove Stephen back to the campsite and dropped him off. He had not been seen since. Okay, there's no way he just went missing. He didn't have a car. I was just going to say that. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that Stephen's friend was looked into. Right. But. Right. Police discovered a kill kit in the area where Mason disappeared. Stephen was a handyman at the same Veterans of Foreign Wars building in Sequim where Keyes was a member. See, that that's where it gets a little suspicious. Like. And that's how a lot of these are. He's just mm-hmm. around close enough. Mm-hmm. There's one that he's suspected of at a college, and I want to say it might be at, like, NYU. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could be wrong on the college. But it, it's just weird how there's always, like, a legitimate reason why he's around, too. Right. It's never like, like oh, I was traveling. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he wasn't, mm-hmm. like, on a road trip, and it just, like, he just, there's always, like, a reason. It's just crazy right. to me. Yeah. He's an interesting guy for sure. Yeah. Well, law enforcement also linked keys to the 2006 disappearance of Gilbert Gilman, who was 47 years old. Gilman went missing on June 24th in Thurston County after he went for a day hike in the Olympic National Forest. He was supposed to meet a coworker that day, but missed the meeting. Keyes was also an avid hiker, who had lived in Nia Bay, from 2001 to 2007, and he had been issued a few overnight backcountry permits that did allow him access to the park during this time. Keyes was also suspected in a string of crimes that occurred near Boca Raton, Florida. 
In Florida, the killer was known as the Boca Killer. The first case in the murder series was that of 52-year-old Randy Ann Gorenberg. She was abducted on March 23, 2007 from the Boca Town Center Mall. Within an hour, her body with two fatal bullet wounds was dumped in a different location. The second was the kidnapping of an unidentified woman who claimed she and her toddler were abducted from the same shopping mall parking lot August 7, 2007. The kidnapper wore a mask and sunglasses. The unidentified victim caught a glimpse of his face and described him as a tall, athletically built man with long hair, which matched a general description of Keys, and probably a lot of other men. This woman was released unharmed after the assailant forced her to withdraw money from an ATM. The third case in Boca was the murder of Nancy Bochiccio, who was 47, and her 7-year-old daughter. They were found fatally shot in the car in the parking lot of the Boca Town Center Mall on December 12, 2007. The police also believe that Keyes might have murdered Deborah Feldman, who was a 48-year-old sex worker with a substance abuse problem. They decided this after they discovered that he frequently searched her missing persons case on his computer shortly before his arrest. That's you should weird. never look any of that stuff on the computer. No. Or go to the library. That's really scary. Mm-hmm. That, to me, would, right? would say that he did it. Deborah was last seen at her apartment in Hackensack, New Jersey, on April 9, 2009. Her body has never been recovered. Federal agents showed a picture of Deborah to Keyes after he was arrested, upon which he hesitated and then said, I don't want to talk about her yet. The police suspected that Keyes buried Deborah near Tupper Lake, New York. Madison Scott was last seen May 28, 2011, in the early morning hours at Hogsback Lake near Vandehoof, British Columbia, after she attended a party at a campsite. Hogsback Lake is about a 33-hour drive from Anchorage, Alaska, where Keyes was living at this time. Keyes traveled to Canada extensively, and when asked about it by law enforcement, if he had killed anyone in Canada, he said, Canadians don't count. Ew. Mm Mm-hmm. How sad. hmm Keyes also confessed to murdering 49-year-old Bill Courier and his 55-year-old wife, Lorraine, of Essex, Vermont. Keyes had broken into the Courier home on June 8, 2011, tied them up, put them in his car, and drove them to an abandoned farmhouse, where he then proceeded to shoot Bill and sexually assault and strangle Lorraine. At this time, their bodies have also not been found. Key stated that two years before their murders, he had hidden a murder kit near their home. After these murders, he moved the contents to a new hiding place in Parrishville, New York, where they remained until his arrest. I know we talked about this, but it still is interesting that all of his victims were different. Uh it's really not the norm for a serial killer. Serial killers tend to stick to um, people who either look like someone in their life that's wronged them or the same sex or, you know, the same build or any anything like that. And all of these people were different, like ages, young, old, 
male, female, children, adults. It's so crazy. And then he, you know, he didn't just do normal serial killer stuff. He would either shoot them or strangle them or, you know, he just had an MO that wasn't an MO. Yeah. And that was his MO. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to tie anybody to like any one person to him because he was so all over the place. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and that like in and of itself to be a serial killer in the 2000s is also crazy because right. you have technology, you have cell phones, you have internet, you have tracking, you know, you have so many, there's video cameras at stoplights mm-hmm. now. There's so many other ways that someone can be caught, you know, technology is so advanced. A lot of CCTV so and yeah. you know, stuff like that. and Yeah. DNA. Like just, mm-hmm. there's so many things now that this case has always been one that's really fascinated me for that reason because it is such a newer case you know in the 70s it made sense because you didn't have dna you didn't have surveillance you didn't have you didn't have all of that you didn't have the technology you didn't have you know people were kind of the world was just kind of yeah it was kind of a a Mm -hmm. nicer place Mm -hmm. and now it's like it just it baffles me that this could happen in today's age society yeah yeah and and nobody know Right. Because this isn't, you know, Israel Keys didn't just kill three people. No. You know, he's claimed many, many mm-hmm. victims. Mm-hmm. All different. All different. All different. Yeah. Different ways of killing them. And the I think the other sad part is a lot of them have never been found. That is, that would be really hard for me to handle, mm-hmm. I think. As I- much as I love the idea of my family member living in Nepal being a Sherpa. Mm-hmm. Not everybody gets to go to Nepal and be Sherpa, so. Right. Right. It's just, that's, that would be really hard. That's very sad to me. hmm Well, crime fans, that concludes our second episode of Israel Keys. So make sure that you guys tune in next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time for episode three, where we will be learning about his final victims and his arrest. Thank you guys so much for listening to Serial Killer Tuesday. We hope that you have a great day wherever you are. Until next time, podcastians, have the day you deserve.